This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kura Mawera. Kura Sam, how's it going? It's going very well indeed. Actually, it's not, but my daughter who has COVID isn't actually in hospital yet. So so touch, find some wood and, and touch wood um, that, that stays that way. I have just been on a plague food delivery run. She's lucky to have you for a dad. My boy with COVID is asymptomatic and incredibly frustrated, stuck at university, can't go anywhere. A 19-year-old who's used to being in the gym all the time and, and is trapped and like a caged yeah. tiger at the moment, I think. Yeah, I think Henry's a bit like that in his flat in Christchurch. He's the only one that's got it in a flat of nine, um, and, and the rest of them are all trapped in the house uh, with him. So that's a good way to mm. for them to get it. Um, anyway, you've had an exciting day. I have, yep. Uh, today, the uh, my petition for changing the rules around the Section 13 pathway to social worker registration was read in the Parliament and uh, has been assigned to a select committee. So I'm super excited about that. Yay! We shall talk yeah. more about that later. That'd be cool. And who are we introducing today? I'll tell you what, Sam. Um, you know, like we often say, I can't believe we haven't interviewed this person. Well, I can't believe we haven't interviewed this person. And uh, it is my absolute honour and privilege to introduce former MP, Director of the Good Shepherds, Director of Network for Learning, uh, soon to be member of the Otago University Council, uh, Chair of the Dunedin Night Shelter. So many things, so much goodness, Claire Curran. Thank you for being with us today. You're amazing, and it's a real joy to have you with us today. Oh, kia ora, everybody. It's just wonderful to be here. Thank you for asking me. I'm really looking forward to it, having a chat. So welcome, Claire. Where are you, Claire? Well, I'm actually, I'm in Dunedin. I'm I'm in the centre of Dunedin right this very minute. I'm I'm in a place called the Life Matters Suicide Prevention Trust, where I'm actually doing a shift um, in a room on my own <clears throat> with the door shut, so I've got my mask off. Um, I'm doing a shift at the Crisis Cafe, um, which is on a Thursday night until 9pm. And really, it's for anyone who's suffering um, mental distress, a place that they can just come and sit and talk to somebody and uh, it's just a, a basically been doing that for about six months now. So um, it's a fantastic uh, service. Um, it would be great if it was more than just Thursday nights and it would be great if we had lots of them in every town and city in the country. 
So we've been asking people how their bubble life is going, and then, of course, it turned into a traffic light, and now it's whatever it is now. So how's your bubble traffic light thing going? Oh, like everyone else's, it's just weird. Um, <laughs> um, y- yesterday I spent all day at home um, doing a board meeting um, that was supposed to take place in Auckland face-to-face, and instead we were all on Zoom for like eight hours or something, um, which is a long time to be sitting in front of a computer screen, you know, trying to have a serious meeting. And, um, you know, and then I'll be, you know, actually doing face-to-face in in the the part-time job that I do at Life Matters. But the rest of the time, pretty much I'm just going to the supermarket and going home and you know, keeping to myself. Um, you know, it sort of feels as if it's going to happen at some point. Um, it's getting closer. You know, um, my niece has it. You know, my my son's being um, tested today because someone in his workplace has got it. Someone in my workplace got it this week. You know, it's sort of getting closer and closer, just like everyone else, really. You get the feeling that everything we've been doing so far has just been practising. Kind of. Um, it's interesting, you know, when I go to the supermarket and I, you know, it's sort of like second nature now to, to scan in, you know, just stay away from people. It sort of feels like because we've been doing that for so long, I, we're much better at it, you know, and I, I feel that Matt, that's one of the reasons why a lot of people won't get sick um, is because they are being careful and because we're mostly looking out for each other. And hopefully we've flattened and delayed the curve long enough that the hospital system doesn't yeah. get flooded. That's right. You know, we we gave ourselves enough time to get vaccinated and, you know, for the system to sort of gear itself up um, and for everybody's behaviours to be, well, shall I say most people's behaviours to be, um, you know, pretty standardised. And, uh, and I, I've just been really proud of New Zealand how... You know, we, like I say, mostly do, you know, look, do look out for each other and do keep an eye on our neighbours and, you know, and I, I know that, you know, if I get sick, I'll have a bunch of people wanting to, you know, bring around groceries or whatever. Um, and I'm I'm hoping to do that for my neighbours and my family as well. So during the pandemic, you've gone from high profile doing stuff to no less important but lower profile doing stuff does that does that doing stuff and and doing doing good doing positive things you talked to there at the night or you talked about the the crisis cafe and the um the night shelter and i don't know what good shepherd is but um we'll talk about that in a minute um where does that positive energy come from i don't know um but yeah i'm i, I like the fact that it's lower profile that's good um <laughs> Um, But it's still about trying to make our systems better, really. Um, Where does that come from? I don't know. It's probably what made me stand for Parliament in the first place. It's sort of a sense. I I don't think I can do much about, you know, the fact that I want to try and keep changing the world, you know. Um, And the two things that really mattered to me when I left politics that I felt I still could make a contribution to um, were homelessness and uh, mental health. And 
you know, I, I, I'm really passionate about both those things and kind of angry with the system, you know, around why can't the system, it's not, you know, to some extent it's about politics, but, you know, it's a system issue. Um, and why can't we fix it? Why is it so hard? You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm now pushing from different directions, but I'm still pushing. Have you found yourself using the argument that we've demonstrated in the pandemic that we can do stuff, we can shut down if we really want to? Have you used that argument to say, actually, we can change things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think I, I remain optimistic that we can change. Um, it's, I also remain convinced that a lot of the time it's grassroots movements that drive change and you know people who have lived experience or people who are on the at the coalface of providing services who know what works and what doesn't work and you know i i that's what i really value you know i loved being a constituent mp i loved the the conversations I had with people who came in through the door with all kinds of issues and they'd come in with one issue and it would actually behind that would sit a whole lot of other issues it could be housing it could be mental health you know but actually what they came in the door with was something else and it's you know you you get to see the the connections and the and the way that the link the linkages between um some of our worst social issues and how they they always come back to some core core things and having a roof over your head um that's you know that you can afford and isn't going to make you sick is actually a pretty damn fundamental thing and also being able to go and get you know when you're feeling really bad and depressed or down or in a crisis actually being able to go and get some help when you need it is pretty basic and goodness you know if you want to look at it with through an economic lens if we actually provide proper services to people when they really need them you know it's going to save a lot of money down the track i was talking with one of the learners that i look after that's doing her doctorate vicky yaka jones who's doing self-care in nurses um, because the whole ethic of nurses is is selfless you look after everybody else and of course the nurses are under enormous pressure and not looking after themselves so she's trying to work on advocacy of that and we are talking about where is the the sweet spot or is there a sweet spot between dealing with the system the the symptoms so what do we do about these nurses that are uh, you know these individual nurses need to know how to look after themselves and the system change things like why are we letting that why are we putting them under such pressure is that from from all the experience that you've had? Is there a sweet spot of, of where you take action between that sort of let's deal with this immediate, immediate symptom, for, find a roof over the head for this person, and the the system change? Where where do you see the place to put action? Well, you've got to start with actually being close to the to where the action is, rather than being sitting in rooms in ivory towers, you know, divorced from where the real, where the services are needed. Um, and you've also got to be careful to have 
try and have flat structures so that you're not creating layers and layers of bureaucracy um, because that's where a lot of, you know, and all my observations and experiences with the public service, which I'm really committed to public service, you know, I mean, I grew up in a, in a home where my father was in the Justice Department and, you know, he was your quintessential civil servant is what they called it in those days. And, um, but, you know, I, I've seen, you know, I've seen firsthand, I've experienced it, you know, what, how those institutions protect themselves um, and don't like to change because it's too scary. And so they put up all these defences um, and barriers and, um, and arguments or they actually, you know, it is a bit, yes, Minister, it's very much, you know, um, lip service that's paid to things and actually change doesn't happen. And, you know, that's part of the problem. And it's about working in silos where, you know, where government agencies or whether it's at local government or central government level, where they, they hang on to their, their little bit of, you know, territory and they don't want to collaborate or they don't want to go across and think about how can we all work together to make this work. Um, yeah, so it's about not putting the actual person, the people who need the help, at the very centre of the services that are being delivered. It, it puts the institution and the people that, you know, make incomes from the institution more at the centre. Yeah, I mean, that's largely what, I mean, it's idealistic, but it is it is where a lot of attempts to make change are coming from, is to try and change that thinking. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Don McGlashan. I will not let you down. Why this one? <laughs> well, I really like Don McGlashan. Um, I mean, you know, he's probably best known for some other songs, but I don't know, there's something about this um, that really touched me. I really like the video. Um, you know, I've watched it over and over again. It's a pretty bizarre video. I don't know if you've ever watched it, Sam, but um, um, but it's there's something about the message in the song, you know, that that's really speaks to me about you know what I try and practice about not letting people down. But um, you know, the fact is that sometimes you do. So, <laughs> but yeah, I love this song, and he's just got the best voice. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a beautiful song. It's a really beautiful song. You must try to believe that I will be coming through. I have burned every bridge that no bridge from here to you so I roll to your eyes 
a bit of an absence of hope around at the moment and and even it would be easy to blame the pandemic but actually it was before the pandemic it's just been like this like a constant erosion of hope from our communities and I often think it's at school level that we're that we're not somehow we're not teaching hope to kids or something's just missing and I'd be I'd really love to know what you think that is yeah, well, you know, we. How long is a piece of string, really? Um, it's um, it's environmental. It's you know, it's kids are growing up in in a in a in a world where, you know, we're seeing the effects of climate change, and I think for young people that's sort of an indication of the failure of the generations that have come before and it, and it sort of evokes a sort of cynicism about the human condition um, and about our species, um, you know, getting all deep and philosophical here, but it's sort of that's what I kind of feel. And, and the other thing is um, I suppose the exposure of young people to, to through the internet to way more uh, of life than perhaps they're ready for, way earlier than, you know, than would have been the path, you know, in, in my generation, for instance. So instead of, you know, coming home from school and going outside and having clod fights with your big brother and <laughs> or playing bull rush or something like that and you know getting beaten up or whatever but still you know being outside and or actually my sister and I used to come home from school and take our hobby horses 
out to do, um, uh, you know, uh, practice outside. Um, <laughs> it all seems a bit ridiculous now, but still, you know, now they come home and they go and play um, computer games where there's a, you know, people die and, um and there's YouTube videos that they're glued to for of all kinds of things that you you know so they're learning stuff that that we just wouldn't have thought of probably so it's yeah it's an amazing I mean it's amazing but it's scary and I think it 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 means that that's led or it's certainly contributed to the rise of anxiety you know there's a lot more anxiety than um particularly you know among younger people that's on the rise and it's just so much to think about and worry about you know I mean I find myself at the moment um you know because there's so much going on and you know it's very close to home with the pandemic but there's so much else going on that I'm limited I limit what I the news I watch I I I don't I no longer watch television news um, I'll, I'll, I, I look at, you know, news websites um, and I get my international news from Twitter, from, you know, what I consider to be reputable sources. Um, but that's kind of it. I, I don't, I just, and sometimes it's like, no, I'm just switching off. I'm going to go and watch um, some trashy thing on Netflix or you know, or I'm in a book club, so I'm trying to finish the book, my book at the moment, you know, so that sort of thing. It's actually limiting my exposure so that I actually am not, my head isn't constantly going round in circles about what's going on in the world. I'm, um, I actually have started doing the same thing. I, I used to religiously watch the news and now I don't ever just stay completely away from it because there's nothing good can come of it. So I pick and choose what I want to expose my brain to because whatever it is, it's going to cause me to worry. And if I'm worried, I'm not productive. And um, and it changes my view of the world. So that kind, so just the decision to do that, to, to limit your exposure to things you know and are not going to do you any good requires a level of critical thinking. And that's uh, another thing that worries me. I look at our education system and I don't see critical thinking being taught in, in the system at the moment. Is, is it something that we can teach? Um, is it something we used to learn at school? Like where did our critical thinking come from and, and how is it absent today? Oh, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, um, I... I yeah, I, I mean, I learned critical thinking, probably my real critical thinking at university. Um, I learned how to argue. and um, But and at primary school, I went to Catholic school. So, you know, you were supposed to just take what they told you. Um, and even if you were going, but that doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised to hear you say that that they're not we're not teaching critical thinking. I, I mean, it seems to me that then that there must, if we're not at schools, then there must be lip service being paid to it because it's you know the the um, the soft skills, the the you know the 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 being able to interpret and and feedback and 
you know, are, are critical. They're absolutely uh, essential for being able to the way you digest information and the and what you do with it is more important than sometimes what the information is, uh, what it's about. So I, I mean, if, if I know that teachers are really overwhelmed by curriculum and responsibilities, extra responsibilities, etc. But I'd hate to think that they that kids weren't learning how to critically think because if they don't, then it's going to be much harder to make a go of it in the world. Mm. And I think that's that's what my this is my observation, and it's an it's an observation I've been making over the last few years. I've just seen the decline in the way that our kids process information and the way they relate to it and it's so much easier for them to just grab onto something where they have some sort of emotional response to and call that truth and that becomes their truth and to the exclusion of other things and we've just seen that happen in Wellington exactly that and and so I just I, I think a lot about how do we fix that in the system so that we keep our kids engaging with all information with an open mind and make them curious about the other side of the story. Maybe that's what's missing. Maybe it's the curiosity. Well, the thing that's really worrying me about what has happened in Wellington is the, well, there's lots of things really, but is the anti-science, this kind of anti-science movement that's started up as if that's something to be proud of. Um, and as if being anti-science is um, is a new badge of honour. Um, uh, and I kind of think to myself, it's very counterintuitive because actually if you, you know, if you have a car crash or break your leg or, or do, you know, something's wrong with you and you need to go to hospital, you want to be fixed and it's science that's going to fix you. Um you know, not vitamins or, you know, um, or some, you know, bizarre theory. So I, 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 I'm, it's the lack of logic and the, that's really frightening when you see it right up in your face in our country in a, in a system where everybody's gone to school and presumably learnt the same-ish curriculum and and yet they've and and I guess it goes to your point about lack of critical thinking, and yet have gone down rabbit holes, and have bought into this whole sort of series of of uh, I guess theories that that are not based in, on any fact on any fact. Mm. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how that's happened. I don't know how that happens to people. I know that the system, I know them being feeling as if they're locked out of the system or marginalised or whatever can contribute to some degree. And I see that at the night shelter, actually, with people who just feel as if they're not part of society and they've got this residual resentment and anger and therefore they're not going to trust authority. Um, So what comes out of, and I guess what's been happening in the pandemic is that the, the authority messages have been more visible and therefore they feel more marginalised from the authority and have looked for other explanations um, and looked so, for other people like them. So can we use the tools that you use in things like the night shelter 
to, I don't know what the goal is, restoring hope. Can we think about those tools scaled up and apply them to society? Yeah. Look, you know, I've become more and more convinced that you can really make a difference in people's lives with quite small acts, um, small, meaningful acts that can give people a sense of value, um, self-value, respecting people, you know, talking to them, listening to them, um, uh, really listening to what they've got to say and helping them just take that next step and them feeling that there's somebody who actually is finally listening and is prepared to go and help them get through a barrier uh, and respect them along the way um, is is actually can make a difference and it can um, and and that's in in both the kind of at the homelessness level um, and also with mental health because so many people struggle you know, with our mental health system because they feel so marginalised from it, from it. They feel stigmatised and they feel as if the system is not geared for them, that they're some, somehow outside it. I mean, to be honest, they are. Most A lot of people are. I mean, if you present at the emergency department with a, um, a suicidal crisis, then you may have to wait for six hours to see somebody. And then by the time you see them, they might, um, you know, assess you. Um, maybe you get admitted to a ward for the night, but the next morning you'll be sent home and often there's no follow-up. What kind of system does that? And especially if you've, you know, actually attempted suicide. So I, I, I just, it's nuts. <laughs> it's just patently wrong and it uh, our you know and the people that work in that system um are, are they're not bad people but they've been institutionalized to behave in certain ways towards people who are exhibiting mental distress and i just think that you know small things small things can make change and if we all practice small things with people and you know give people a chance and then and try and help them get to that next step it can make a difference um i'm all for big change as well (laughs) but but, you know i i guess i've come to the conclusion that you know if you push away at small change you do contribute to the bigger discussions but that you i'm also into demonstrating change rather than just talking about it, Um, you know, actually doing it, doing the mahi rather than just talking about it, yeah. Okay, I need to demonstrate some change and put some music on. The second (laughs) of your music choices, The Chills, Submarine Bells, why this one? Yeah, well, it's kind of a bit like Don McGlashan, you know, The Chills are so well known and so well loved and the song that they're most loved for, Pink Frost, um, I love that song, but there's something about submarine bells that takes you into a different dimension, and um, and I, I, that's what I love about it. I, and it's just this—it really takes you into a different world. And you know, I, I just think there's so much depth in um, in the chills, 
in the work, you know, in, in their work. Their newer stuff is great, but there's something about submarine bells that really gets me every time I listen to it. Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. 
Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanui, kia koutou, kotahua hau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope, wherever you are, and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining, and illuminating for you more in each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here, making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for all of us over the last more than two years we've had to deal with so many difficult shifts and changes that have taken place in a world and a reality that we knew so well that we that we trusted. And part of the, the healing and the learning and the co-evolution with all life in an infinite web which is taking place now is a regaining of that trust. And the more that we can do to have a sense that that connection, that security, that safety, that protection, that love, that embrace of the infinite universe, that support of the infinite universe is still there, is so helpful. And so of course for everybody there are different ways to do that. For me the living world, the natural world, is a huge conduit of healing and security and reassurance for me, feeling that connection with all life in an infinite web being inspired by the other living beings that I see around me constantly, knowing that underground, pulsing with life, there is a web of communication and cooperation and that this is an ancient web. Another aspect of my life that's really helping me right now and I thought I would talk with you about today is of course our physical bodies, our ho'oratenana, getting moving getting out and about, getting those endorphins. And I have recently returned to my body's favorite place, Bar Base. And as we know, I have been in attendance at this studio since the 11th of October, 2018. I've completed 792 classes and I'm determined to make it to a thousand classes this year. So I'm excited to have this new challenge but also I'm so grateful to be back because it really has reaffirmed to me the huge comfort and relief and release that comes from that sense of connection with that beautiful vessel that we all possess with our beautiful, beautiful physical selves and the joy and the pleasure and the, the amazement that can come from what we can do physically and how we can communicate physically, how we can express ourselves physically, how energy can move through us and music can move through us and we can feel so many new things and such a sense of freedom and strength. So being back in that space of exercise is really, really helping me and I've got my calendar and my gold stars for the month of March and being back at the bar at bar base is incredibly helpful so i really hope for you wherever you're drawing that sense of connection and support and trust in the universe from that it's working really well for you and that as i'm so lucky to be able to do with this show you're able to communicate that to others because of course as we know innately as a species our ability to share and communicate with each other what is helping us, what is benefiting us, is so helpful for one another to inspire and to learn from one another and to try new things, to be brave. 
As we know, I've recently started paddleboarding and I'm really hoping to paddleboard out to Rabbit Island and explore this weekend. And this is something I never would have tried had it not been for my beautiful manager encouraging me and sharing with me that that's what has helped her to find that space and find that reconnection and that trust, that stability, standing on a paddleboard, an undulating sea. So, yes, I hope you find some things that are helping you and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Claire Curran. Claire, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Um, okay. Um, the concept of well-being, actually, in a meaningful way, um, in every part of our lives, as being like bottom line, in whether it's you're in a, a corporate environment, a community organisation, a school, um, you know that it's actually well-being, um, as, you know, is is something that really matters to society, and it's individual, but it's collective as well. Um, you know, equity um, across our systems. Um, you know, I'm. You know, when I was a member of parliament and a minister, I, you know, I'm. I really am, and I remain committed to digital inclusion, so that, you know, because I see it as being so that everybody's got access and the ability to pay for it, the ability to um, use it, and because it's such a powerful tool for people, no matter where they live. Um, what their economic circumstances are or whether they're disabled or, you know, to actually participate in society and to be creative um, with digital, using digital. And if, if, if it's made available to them and if it's a bottom line and seen as essential. So, you know, I see that as being really important. Um, you know, I just want... You know, I want us to take action on climate, you know, really serious action. And I'm yet to see it, you know, in a really strong, meaningful way. But I kind of feel like we're going in that direction. Um, and I just want us to all spend more time doing things that we love, you know, and feel good about it, you know. Um, I've just written a crime novel, which isn't published <laughs> yet. But... <laughs> but I I did that last year. I was going to go overseas in 2020, at the end of 2020, but, you know, when I left Parliament, but I couldn't because of COVID. So I wrote a crime novel. I started it and I finished it mid last year. So that was fun. I never knew that I <laughs> could do that. But, <laughs> yeah. So watch that space. <laughs> I think we shall. One of the things that I think that the pandemic has shown us is that well-being has got legs. The, the, the first well-being budget, whenever that was, five years ago, had got some notice in the 
in the media, but it was kind of like this this weirdo novelty thing. And then quite quickly they said, yeah, that's nice, but where's the money? And I think that what the pandemic response has shown is that you can actually, it's just, this is demonstrating to the best of people's ability, perhaps, that you can actually base policy on well-being and base decisions on well-being. Was that the was that the intention you know of that yes, positioning absolutely. of well-being yes absolutely um it's it's a really deliberate kind of subversive attempt to burrow into the institutionalization of the way that policy is manifested through our public service through the bureaucracy by sticking something that's a core at a core value you know at the bottom line so you know treasury um and and using treasury to do that so that it becomes one of the measurements of course measuring well-being isn't that easy but you know and, and that leaves it open to criticism but it means that it's an absolute part of the bottom line. And, you know, it's, uh, I think that's exciting. And it means that policy then has to move to more, towards more equity. Are you seeing that played out? Now you're on the other side of the table. Are you seeing it played out? Has it gotten yeah, real? I think I, I'm starting to. I'm, you know, I, I'm a person that likes to see change happen faster <laughs> and I don't want to wait another decade. Um, but look, you know, if you want to, we are getting more state housing. We've, we, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of more, um, you know, state houses through Kainga Ora. You know, in Dunedin, we're seeing the emergence of um, grassroots health provision through Takaika, um, through a different way of delivering health services. And that's starting to get, that's getting bigger. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like forcing the system to change from the grassroots up, which I think is really exciting. It sends chills down my spine, actually, when I think about it, because it's sort of like, it's like changing the system in spite of the system. And, you know, that's great. We want more of it. We just need more of it. There's no point doing a segue to the chills after we've played it. I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time, so we shall have to wriggle through it. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's probably there's things if I really thought about it, but um, the thing, something I'm really proud of is, is that Hillside Engineering Workshops in Dunedin, that is the sort of symbol of the importance of manufacturing skills, rail, um, it was killed off by the previous national government and it held on by the skin of its teeth to a few employees in those huge workshops um, and I pushed and pushed and worked with the union and, you know, over years convinced my party to back that, the Labour Party, to back rail 
when they if they got back into power and to bring back the hillside workshops and it's happening and there are apprentices there are women apprentices there are um you know there's contracts there's a pipeline of work there's development of the workforce um it's on the way up again and it's impacting on dunedin uh and i feel really proud of that well done we are writing a book of these conversations it's not a crime novel it's called tomorrow's heroes it's our team of people doing good work so you are in that team what's your superpower what got you into the mansion <laughs> um bloody mindedness do you consider yourself to be an activist absolutely at my very core So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Trying to make shit happen. And my cats need to be fed. <laughs> and what is the biggest challenge or opportunity you're looking forward to in the next year or so? <sighs> Well, I really want to go and walk the Camino across Spain. That was what I was going to do in 2020. It's a pilgrimage, sort of, of a sort, um, 774 kilometres. Um, and I would really like to get my crime novel published. Um, but that's a bit of a mission because there's lots of editing. It's all very well to write a book, but then you've got to do all these things to it to make it publishable. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I, I'd like to see, um, I'd really like to see the shape of um, homelessness in Dunedin change or, you know, precarious housing change. Um, it's an invisible scourge that we ignore um, at our peril and um, I want to see a no wrong door for people with mental health um, issues that no matter which door they go into they, they get the help they need and lastly do you have any advice for our listeners um I don't know, just <laughs> there is hope. <laughs> I am eternally optimistic. I, I am because I think the human condition is is essentially, I mean, we're flawed creatures, but we, you know, when we work together, we can make great stuff happen. Um, so, you know, collaborate, um, but also take time to enjoy beauty and enjoy things in life you know I think we spend too much time working with our noses to the grindstone and we need to put our heads up and and really enjoy things go out for walks you know listen to birds sing that sort of thing we're off camping at Papatoi for the weekend I shall do those things Mawera right yeah um you are a remarkable woman. You're kind. 
and you are a really amazing role model for walking your talk. Uh, and, you know, often people say things, but they don't always have the the uh, living the living that to back it up, and you do. And I really appreciate that, and I appreciate your constant desire to make things better and all the actions you take to, to see that happen. And um, I really, I think that we're really lucky to have you and uh, we appreciate you and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I think you guys are great too. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes I feel like saying, Lord, I just don't care. But you've got the love I need to see me through. Sometimes it seems the Lord is just too old. Anything go wrong, no matter what I do. Now and then it seems like the life is just too much. But you've got the love I need to see me through. When food is gone, you are my daily need. Oh. When friends are gone, I know my savior's love is real. You know it's real. You got the love. 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 Time after time, I think all oh, of what's the use. Time after time, I think it's just no good. Cause sooner or later in life, the things you love, you lose. But you've got the love I need to see me through. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. And this is Thorns and Machine. with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and we've been joined from central Dunedin by Claire Curran. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.